have your Bible uh, with you, physical or electronic copy, go ahead and pull that out and turn to that passage there in Luke chapter 10, uh, starting at verse 38. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, where um, if you haven't been with us or if, you're, if you kind of forget that we're going through the gospel of Luke, we're not going through the whole gospel, but here in this time in between kind of the major seasons of the Christian year, in between uh, Pentecost and in between Advent, there's ordinary time, which depending on which year we're in and the, when the moon and Easter falls and all that, it can be anywhere from 23 to 30 weeks. And so we have this extended period of time in the summer to really focus in on this middle portion of the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus is really uh, concerned with teaching his followers how to follow him, how to be disciples, what it means to actually be a Christian. And if you'll remember, last week we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, it was this, this conversation between this Jewish lawyer, this Jewish expert in the law, and Jesus. And the guy comes up and he tries to school Jesus. He tries to get Jesus stuck and he says, uh, how should I act? What should I do to inherit the kingdom of God? To inherit eternal life is the exact wording. Jesus asks him what he thinks and he gives this really orthodox answer. Right? He gives a good, right answer that he should love God with all his heart, soul, mind, strength and that he should love his neighbor, but then tries to make this, this limiting qualification to say, well, should my neighbor really be anybody, or is it this little small swath of people that I'm comfortable with? And Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan to show that, no, without discrimination, whenever someone comes into your way who has a need, show mercy and be a neighbor. That's how you um, inherit eternal life. And... Um, the, the passage that uh, uh, immediately follows is this one right here that we just read in Luke chapter 10. See, whereas last week we talked about how to be a neighbor and how that reflects the holiness of God and how it reflects the gospel of God, the other side of that coin is that love God aspect, isn't it? See, the, the guy asking about how to inherit eternal life, he didn't ask for clarification on should I worship God or not. Like they had all kinds of systems for that. But he asked for clarification on who is my neighbor. Um, so here, Luke is providing a story, a very short story here, to show us that that other side of the coin, even though we are to love others and to be neighbors, that other side of the coin of being with God and of loving God is still equally as important and is something that we should not neglect. Today in this passage, we will see that to overcome worry and distraction, we must rest in Christ. To overcome worry and distraction, we must rest in Christ. Um, worry is a thing that we all deal with. You may not be a worrier who worries a lot, but we all deal with some levels of worry. And some, I was just talking with one person before the service, some levels of worry, of concern about, okay, there's some unexpected things coming. How do I prepare? Those are kind of healthy. What we're talking about is another layer of worry that uh, gets us preoccupied and distracted, and it's this flood of negative emotions around something that we can't control in the future. And Jesus addresses that worry. He addresses that uh, sense of distraction in this story. So if you've got your Bible open, if you've got your, if your text open, look with me there at verse 38. Jesus comes into this region and apparently meets Mary and Martha for the first time. It seems here that this is their first time meeting. You guys remember Lazarus, the, the mummy who comes out? Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out and they're like, unwrap him. 
And he, that's, Jesus wept, the shortest. If you memorize any verse in the Bible, that's the shortest one. It's about Lazarus, and this is their brother, right? Okay, so Jesus knows this family really well when all is said and done. This is apparently an initial meeting. This is apparently an initial meeting, and these are sisters of Lazarus, like we just said, and it says that when Jesus comes into that village, a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. So Martha welcomes this person into her house. Well, you guys have, I'm sure, either been welcomed by somebody or welcomed others. What does that involve? Another way to say that is that she's being hospitable, right? She's, she's got some things to do. They're probably going to have a meal, right? They're going to hang out. They're going to be there for a while. She's actually giving Jesus a, a chance to rest because he's come from, it says, as they went on their way, Jesus has just been doing ministry. He's been walking around. It's probably hot. Like, he needs a place to rest and to sit down. They don't have air conditioning. They probably have windows. Maybe there's a cool breeze. Who knows, right? But he comes and he sits down. Uh, she's showing hospitality. She's inviting him to sit at the table in her home. And so she entertains him as her guest. She's being what? A neighbor. We talked about that last week. This is really good. She's being a neighbor, right? She's doing good things here. Okay, so, you know, for me, if you were to come over to my house, um, I'd probably think about what kind of food we'd have. Um, I would really want to cook you a piece of meat and some vegetables. Um, that's what I like to do. And uh, maybe I'd go crazy and I'd make you some homemade sourdough bread or something if I was really feeling up to it. I'd have to start that preparation a week ahead of time so I get my starter going and get it all bubbly. Um, I'd, you know, I'd even think about, believe it or not, I'd think about straighten up a little bit. You know, I'd pick up the toys and I'd probably light a candle in the bathroom so you can't smell the toddler poop in the, in the toilet uh, or in the, in the basket or whatever that we take out every once in a while. And, um, you know, I, I start to kind of stress out a bit, actually, when I start to prep. I've got these, like, memories of working in a, in a, in a lunch cafe that I worked in in college, and it's like, you got to work quick. And, and pretty quickly, my kitchen goes uh, to the size where it has exactly enough room for one person. It's like, get out of my way! You know, I'm, I'm prepping, I'm cutting stuff, and, you know, some of you guys have that mentality with me. It's like, I'm in control, like, I'm going to make this happen. Start to kind of stress out a little bit. You ever done that? Family's coming over. The turkey's got to be perfect. So, you know, there's stuff, there's stuff involved if you've got decoration. Like, there's stuff involved in hosting people. So you, you get that Martha, she, this is Jesus. Like, he's, he's well known at this point. We're halfway through Luke. People, crowds are following him. He's doing crazy miracles, right? I mean, you've got, let's say the governor of well, they don't have governors. The mayor of, of, of Dallas is coming over or something. Someone, you know, I don't know what you think about him. I don't even know his name right now. But let's say he comes. I mean, that's kind of an important person. He's not like, you know, it's not like LeBron James, who, by the way, that'd be incredible to host LeBron James. I would love that. Some of you are like, he sucks. And I'm like, I like him. So, but it's not like that big, but it's like he's a regional star at this point. He's not yet the ascended Lord of the universe, you know, post-resurrection uh, worshipped throughout the Roman Empire, but he's well known. So this is still a big deal. We get it? Martha's got, Martha's got some stuff to do. Like she's ready to host. She's ready to do her thing. So then it tells us Martha has a sister named Mary. This could go really bad or really poorly, <laughs> or really good or really bad, right? Um, this, this introduction of this new character. So it's her sister, right? So are they on good terms? Does she live with her? We don't know. doesn't say if she lives with her if she's married, but um, she's there, right? And either way, the assumption here is that if she has a sister in this time period, if you are a woman hosting, that you're probably doing the work of hosting as a woman, and the men are going to be sitting and talking about things of theology. 
At the time, that was the assumption. Uh, Mary's going to be assisting and hosting this esteemed guest. And you have to remember uh, who's coming with Jesus. He's got how many disciples? Twelve. Have you ever hosted twelve people before? Maybe Mesa groups, and you got kind of get ready for a Mesa group to come over. And, of course, we bring food, but these guys aren't bringing food. They don't have anything. They're providing all this. So the assumption is, yeah, Mary, you're going to be helping me. Right? Like, they might have even had a conversation about it. Like, all right, I'll start, you know, I'll cut the head off the lamb, and I'll do this, and you get the potatoes. Sorry, that was really grotesque. But, um, but what does Mary do? Does Mary help? This is hilarious. And she had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Um, Sat down alongside. So the way that they did this is, you know, if they're at a table and they're getting ready for a meal, there's a a low table and they're reclining kind of on their side. And so, uh, or he might have been elevated, but it was traditional, you know, uh, a, a, a position of a disciple at the feet of the teacher uh, that, that's a common image there, right? If they're seated, seated and they're teaching, like you'd want to be right there. Like if you were the really eager kid who wanted to answer every question in kindergarten and you were sitting right in front of the kid, that teacher and when she said, who can tell me how many apples there are on the page? Like, you know, that was, that was like right in front of the teacher. That's the place of a learner. That's the place of a student. And in this culture, the place of a man, not of a woman. So this is like, all kinds of different situations of wacky. So she's, she's where, like, it's, it's really improper for her to be sitting there as a woman. Uh, and it's really uh, offensive, we find out, to her sister that she's not helping. Well, we got some problems, don't we? We got some problems in this situation. There's some tension. It's rising. So in contrast to Mary's posture at the feet of Jesus, it tells us what Mary is doing. And we aren't surprised, are we, based on what we just talked about? We're not surprised. Look at Mary. It says, but Mar- or excuse me, what Mar- Martha's doing. It says, Martha was distracted, in verse 40, with much serving. Much serving. How much serving? Much. Right? So she's like, you know, she's running around. She's like a tornado. Maybe she has other people. Now, Martha is not sinning here. You know, I don't want to overplay this. Mar- Martha's not sinning. Martha's neighboring. She's trying to host. She's trying to be hospitable. Um, but she, she's being faithful. She's being committed to what she said. She said, I'll host you. So she's trying to fulfill that and do a good job. Right? She's trying to be a neighbor. And since she was going through all this trouble, she begins to become a little bit frenetic. Um, she begins to feel worried about everything not getting done. She begins to feel worried that uh, they're all going to go hungry, that she's going to be dishonored. And this is kind of an honor situation too. I don't know if um, it's still like in the culture of, of the Middle East that like I had a friend from Palestine growing up and when I went to his, his house, I mean, his dad just kept giving me food. It was like, you will leave here overly full, and it's an honorable thing for me to give you all you need and more, and that for there to be some left over. If there isn't, it's like shameful for him, because this is, this is built into that, to that culture, and this is here. Like, she's trying to really, it, it reflects on her what she's doing. Hello, North Texas performance culture. It reflects on her identity what she's doing and providing for Jesus. So she begins, she begins, her reputation, her identity, her sense of okayness is at stake here. And so she starts to, she has an outlet for it. It's like, it's going to, maybe she's the older sister, I don't know, but it's going to reflect bad on me, Mary, if you don't get up 
Start helping. Pull your weight. You're part of this family. You don't even belong at the feet of the rabbi. You're not, you're a woman. Get in the kitchen with me. This is kind of what's going on. We know how the story turns out, right? She goes to Jesus and says, make her help me. And Jesus says, it's okay. She's, you know, we're resting. She's, she's resting at the feet of Jesus. You're too busy. And it'd be really easy to just say, this is about being overscheduled. Is anyone busy? Is anyone here busy? Really? Show of hands. Do you, have, do you have a job? Maybe you're not. I don't know. Maybe you're like, I don't know. My kids are out of the house. I'm retired. I feel really good, actually. But maybe you're still busy, or maybe you've got two people working and, and, and kids coming and whatever. And like, is, is the answer really just, okay, I'm going to give away my son, and I'm going to cut my hours to half, and like, great, now I'm better. <laughs> no, right? Like, I've got, we've got things that we've got to do. Is, is it just about being too busy? Um, there's more going on here, and Luke is such a good writer. He did this last week. He told, us, he told us why the lawyer was asking Jesus questions, didn't he? Remember? To justify himself, he asked, who is my neighbor? He gives us these clues. Well, Luke does the same thing here. So it says, uh, look in verse 40. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. There it is. Do you not care? Do you not care? Are you, are you dealing with uncertainty? Is there, is there something that worries you? Is there something you're trying to get done? Is something unsettled in your life? Does the Lord even care? Do you not, do you not see this, God? Do you not see where I'm really struggling and I'm starting to get really frenetic because I don't know how this is going to turn out? Do you not care that she's not helping me? That's different. I think about my three-year-old daughter. There's times um, in my house with her where things can come unhinged a bit, believe it or not, with a, with a three-year-old. Um, and often something won't go her way and she'll start to get emotional about it and you know, and it's easy for me to kind of get wrapped up in the cold, hard facts. Well, it's like, well, if you just put on your shoes like I told you and don't run on the, on the concrete, then you wouldn't have hit your toe. And please stop. If you wouldn't have picked your brother up who's one and try to carry him across the room, he wouldn't have fallen, you know. And it can, it can spiral really quickly. But a lot of times with that situation, the most effective thing for me to do, you know what it is? Just to hold her. Just to pick her up and hold her. Because... When she knows that I see her problem and that I care, she can get through it way easier. As of yet, she, at three years old, has not yet encountered something that she couldn't get through as long as she knew that someone was there, saw what she was going through, and cared. Even something as catastrophic as not being able to get the lid off the toothpaste. <laughs> ah, help me! Like, okay, come on, I got you. I know you're trying to get it off, you know. And we have those things in our life. We have those things. Martha's not just too busy. Jesus sees. Martha's not just too busy. She's not just miffed about having to prepare this table alone. Do you not care? Jesus gives us a little bit further insight into what's going on too. Look what he says. After Martha interrupts Jesus, because by the way, he's teaching, so she has to be like, hey, hold on. <laughs> I mean, she's mad enough to get into this situation and be like, hold on, Jesus, everybody, I'm so sorry, but. Oh 
Everyone's like, look at Jesus, look at her. And Jesus looks at Mary and looks at Martha. You know, it's like, cut, cut, cut. Everyone's just awkward silence. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, she's that worked, at this point, she's worked up enough to interrupt the situation to do this. Okay, so this is a big deal to her. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha. And gosh, he repeats her name. It's not common that Jesus does that. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you. It's like emphatic, right? Martha, Martha. It's not often that he repeats someone's name. And uh, gosh, he gets, it's to get her attention, I guess. It's like, hold on, whoop, whoop, shh, shh, Martha, eyes on me. But it's, it's this like soothing, I think of like a mother and her child, like, hey, hey, I'm right here. Hey, I see this as incredibly gentle from Jesus. I see this as incredibly caring from Jesus. I see this as uh, tender. More, more, Jesus isn't just annoyed or like, Martha, Martha, like, whoa, jeez, get a grip. You know, it's not that. I, I think this is Jesus really being tender and getting her, her attention, saying, hey, hey, you are anxious and troubled about many things. She's like, hold on, hold on. I'm not here for a counseling session. Everybody's watching. Like, I just want her to help me, you know, make some bread. Like, it's not that big. No, no, no. You are anxious and troubled about many things. He doesn't, he doesn't play. Like, he's just like, to the heart. Like, we, we can get distracted. We can convince ourselves that, like, it's really about these surface things. It's really about the money, or it's really about the, the health, or it's really about the job, or it's really about the kids, or it's really about the house being too messy. But actually, what's the subtext? Like, what's under there? What is that? Like, what is, what is that that's making you, like, it's just a messy floor. Or it's, 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 it's just money. What is that that's making you like freak out a little bit? That worry. And Jesus says, there's a heart, there's something going on there. You're, you're worried and you're troubled about many things. Jesus lays, he says, Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. And we'll talk about that in a second. But Jesus lays the issue open. The word anxious um, there, I don't think equates to our word for like anxiety, the disorder. Okay, he's not saying like you have anxiety. She's chosen the one thing. It maps better to the word probably worry for us or um, anxious in the like, in the like oh, I'm kind of like, can't sit still about something, right? It's the same word Jesus uses to say, don't worry about tomorrow what you will eat or drink or what clothes you'll wear, right? He doesn't mean don't plan ahead or don't work. He's not saying like a mild concern, but he's also not saying this is like some kind of chronic issue. He's saying there's this like unhealthy worry that she's dealing with. General picture, that second word also, by the way, um, that you're troubled, that your, your mind is discombobulated or troubled. This is a mental thing that's going on. He's describing her cognitive situation. She's worried and she's troubled or she's, she's distracted. It actually says that she's distracted with many things in that previous verse, with much serving. How much serving? Much serving. So she is worried and distracted. Let's talk about worry then. Um, it's, it's important to know, what is worry? Uh, Thomas Borkovich, I think is how you say his name, was a researcher from Penn State several decades ago, and he, he researched worry for a really long time, and his definition, I think, is pretty helpful. 
Um, we have that, that slide as well. Worry is a series of thoughts and images that are charged with negative emotion. These thoughts are relatively uncontrollable and they concern some issue that's a, that has an uncertain outcome. The worrier is convinced, however, of the high probability that one or more of the negative outcomes will actually occur. So it's, this, it's, it's a series of words or images, negative, something bad's going to happen, and it's a certainty that they are going to happen even though it's uncertain. So I, before going further, I just want to clarify that I'm not, um, I don't, I don't want to talk about or try to diagnose or tell you how to de with, deal with something like a, a general, generalized anxiety disorder or depression in this moment. That's not what we're talking about. Um, or obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm talking about the lower lowercase w worry that can be experienced in those, within those diagnoses, but also can be experienced across the spectrum by all kinds of different people. So it's just, it's just an undue or an un, uh, uh, a disproportionate level of concern with something in front of us that is then occupying our minds and spinning us into a negative state. Worry. This doesn't have to be the be-all be all end-all definition, but I think it is helpful because there's a couple of things that we can take out of it um, that, that help us understand what is worry really about. Well, number one, worry is about the future, isn't it? You don't worry about the past. You can regret the past. You can feel sorry about the past, but you're worrying about what's coming. It's a, it's a future outcome that's uncertain. Um, worry is isolating. It's in our heads. Worry is a mental or cognitive thing. The thing that separates worry from anxiety that anxiety starts to involve bodily manifestations, so like increased heart rate, maybe uh, uh, um, being agitated or decreased appetite, things like that. But worry is, this, is the mental aspect of that where we start to spin off, okay, what's going on? And, and so it's, it's necessarily isolating. You're by yourself, aren't you? It's in your head, worrying about what's going to come. And worry is distracting. Worry is distracting because it actually... Um, happens in the mind, it, because it's happening in the mind, it takes away our ability to focus on what's right in front of us. The Bible calls this sober-mindedness, or uh, a common term for it today is mindfulness, being mindful of what's around you. Well, if you're preoccupied with what's going to happen, if you're preoccupied with what could happen, you can't actually focus on what's happening in front of you. In fact, some researchers have done some work to show that mindfulness techniques to kind of focus on what is right in front of you actually helps overcome some of the worry that we're experiencing about the future because it gets us out of the future, gets us out of, the, out of our own head into the external and what's right, really, right in front of us really happening. And so this is what worry does. It, it gets us focused on the future, on the uncertainties, and we catastrophize things and we think that the worst is going to happen even though we have no idea and it's isolating and we feel alone and we don't know what to do and it spirals. And then we start to become disconnected from what's happening around us because our minds are somewhere else. So how do we deal with worry? Well, there's, there's a couple of things. I won't be able to go on all of them. There's, there are avoidance strategies. So you avoid. One of the things I, I see a lot with, for instance, high schoolers is, um, man, it's a really worrying experience to talk to a boy or a girl that you like as like a 14-year-old. So what do they do? They just don't do it. They just Snapchat each other. Because it's way less intimidating and way less confrontational. So they actually don't have to overcome the like discomfort and the worry of what might happen when we talk. So they go through a less intrusive, and they, they say like this, yeah, of course, that's like way less 
if they just don't respond, then okay, it's just a Snapchat. But like if they were to shame me in the hallway in front of people, that would really be terrible. It's lower risk. So we just avoid the worrisome situation. Or maybe there's someone that you've got some issues with in your family or, or some friends. Well, instead of bringing that issue up and having that conversation because you're worried about the outcome of that conversation, you just avoid it. We just never talk about hard stuff. We just never talk about what's going on in our lives. We just never confess sin. We just never ask for a higher level of holiness and righteousness in the way that we deal with one another because that's really uncomfortable. And so the avoidance strategy helps us. Uh, it's easier in the, in, the, in the short term, but it actually conditions us to worry more in the long term because we never deal with, never develop the courage to deal with our worries right in front of us. So avoidance, that's a maladaptive behavior, they call it. There's also approach strategies. There's avoidance strategies and there's approach strategies. So this is where we kind of have, this is what Martha's doing. There's approach strategies. It's a way of actually engaging a worrying situation. Like, I don't know where my kid is, so I'm checking their, or I know where they're they're supposed to be, so I'm checking their location every 12 minutes on my phone because I think that uh, if I continually get more information, that it'll make me feel better. Well, what that does, just like a hit of any sort of drug or substance, it's like it's soothing us for a minute but we're never actually having to go long periods of time without dealing, without forgetting our worry. We're just reinforcing worry by obsessing over it and needing more assurance. We're seeking assurances about our worry when actually that assurance, we have no control over where they're driving right now, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe you're a compulsive planner, like, hey, if my, if my schedule is perfect and nothing weird comes up and nothing unexpected, if you're, any, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, my six is out here, like if you have uh, everything ordered right where it needs to be, then nothing weird will happen. I don't have to worry about unexpected events. Like I can control my schedule and the future is mine. I'm good, I'm safe. And this is what I think a lot of us do. This is where I want to focus in because I think in the example in this story, this is what Martha's doing. She's actually trying to control the situation. There's this awesome quote from Dorothy Day about controlling time and about busyness and how we're always trying to get things done and we're always trying to get ahead in our business or we're always trying to get get stuff done around the house or whatever. And she says this, she says, we delude ourselves into believing that if we can just get everything done, if we can only tie up all the loose ends, If we can even once get ahead of the crush, we will prove our worth and establish ourselves in safety. Our problem with time is social, cultural, and economic to be sure, but it is also a spiritual problem. One that runs right to the core of who we are as human beings. Indeed, these distortions drive us into the arms of a false theology. We come to believe that we, not God, are the masters of time. We come to believe that our worth must be proved by the way we spend our hours. And here's the catch, that our ultimate safety depends on our own good management. At the very bottom of all this, my own take, if I were to summarize this for myself, is that worry is fundamentally the belief that I won't be okay. It's fundamentally the belief that I'm not going to be okay and that I'm unsafe.
whatever may come, whatever it is, whoever it is they interact with, whatever the situation turns out to be, whether there's health issues or financial struggles, I believe I won't be okay, so I worry. And when I worry, I get distracted from the things that are actually right in front of me, the most important to me. In this story, Jesus is, uh, Martha is worried and distracted, and Jesus redirects her to the one thing that is necessary, that Mary chose, and it's Jesus himself. The opposite of worry for the Christian is rest in Christ. The opposite of worry is rest in Christ. And so Jesus gives us all kinds of promises. He gives us all kinds of promises about he will never leave us nor forsake us, that at the end he will give us resurrection from the dead, that at the end he will wipe away all of our sins, that he'll wipe away every tear from every eye, there will no, be no more disease or hunger. And these promises towards the future are what solve our worry for today. So what if you come to this point, you realize, I have worry. I worry about things all the time, or maybe every once in a while. What do you do about it? How do you get out of worry to a place? I don't feel restful. How do I rest? Richard Baxter has this great line. He says, you may command your time, though not your effects or your affections. You can, even if you don't feel like it, you can still command what you do with your time. Right? I don't, I don't, I don't feel like working out. Well, you could still do it. You just don't want to. Like, I don't feel like resting tonight. I feel like doing more chores before I go to bed, or I feel like doing uh, more work or whatever before I go to bed. You can control your time. And the body trains the soul in this way. Like the liturgy that we go through, different spiritual practices, prayer, they actually train us to find rest when we don't have it, to find rest in Jesus when we don't have it. And so I want to actually introduce you to a practice. And we're going a little bit long, but um, this is such an important topic in our, um, in our day, worry, anxiety, fear. And I want to give you one tool, I think, something that you can do at the end of the day, every day, that will take you five to ten minutes, that will help you be mindful of what's going on and center you. It's something called an examine, E-X-A-M-E-N. Um, and I'm going to ask a series of questions, just five steps, and I want us to do this right now. We're going to spend five minutes doing this. Um, you can spend much longer on this, especially depending on what goes on in your day, or you can spend five minutes at home. But I want to give you a couple of steps, and you can look this up. You'll find these steps anywhere online. Um, this is a, an old and pretty common uh, spiritual practice. So I would invite you now, if you would, just close your eyes. Um, maybe eliminate distraction as much as possible. Please don't put your phone away. Um, calm your body. So the first thing you do Just get still and acknowledge God's presence, that he's with you. God, by his Holy Spirit, is always um, with you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He's always in you. He's never distant. And the second step then is to think back on your day with gratitude. And one way to maybe do this is turn your hands, your palms up, and to just recognize that you receive everything from the Lord. All good things come from him. And just begin to thank him. Just to begin to say the things that he's done for you that are, that are good. 
Simple things, food, air, people that you love, things that he's done for you. Begin to um, become aware of the things in your life that actually testify to God's goodness and faithfulness. The third step then is to acknowledge and think back on one consolation and one desolation. So let me explain what those are. Consolation is one significant blessing or significant, um, significant thing that brought you life or brings you life that you experienced in the last day. Just acknowledge that. Just bring it to mind. Make note of it. And the desolation is something that is like maybe life taking something bad that happened or something maybe that you did that's sinful. What's one desolation? Something that has robbed you of joy, robbed you of life in Christ, that's distracted you from Jesus. Just make a mental note of what's the one consolation? What's the one desolation? And then the fourth step is really to hone in on that desolation and to pray about that and to to ask God's forgiveness God's help, God's promises, his grace, appropriate for that desolation. So if it's something that happened to you, just ask for his healing and mercy. If it's something that you did, ask for his forgiveness. When dealing with, um, Richard Baxter says, when dealing with melancholy mind, You should spend as much, if not more, time on the mercy and goodness and grace of God as you do on the sin. And then lastly, look forward to the future, to tomorrow, and and confess to God your confidence in his promises and his grace to sustain you, knowing that he will be with you. If you look up, you'll see Jesus. No, I'm just kidding. If you look up, you can metaphorically see Jesus in front of you uh, like you're sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary. What you're doing in that moment is you're actually paying attention to and being mindful of Christ's presence in front of you. Uh, you're being mindful of what's happening. You're dispelling worry by paying attention to how has God been faithful And so spending each night this way will give you a way to um, kind of recenter yourself and focus back and pay attention on the, the one thing that matters. And with the psalmist, we can say, I will lay me down in peace and take my rest for you, Lord, only make me dwell in safety. He makes us safe because he makes us safe. We can be without worry. To the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.